Well, welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today I have a special guest who's been on this show twice before. She's the author of several amazing books on Michigan history and legends. Some of her titles include Wicked Grand Rapids, Wicked Ottawa County, and Ghosts and Legends of Michigan's West Coast. Amber Rose Hammond has been actively researching legends, ghost stories, haunted places, and other unusual and macabre topics in Michigan history since 2000. She's got a new book that came out this year called Mysterious Michigan. And today we're going to get into some of the spirit of October and Halloween and talk about some ghostly tales. So I'm so happy to have her back on the show again. Welcome back, Ambrose. Thank you for taking time to be on the podcast today. Thank you, Michael. I'm thrilled to be back. I love your show. I'm, I'm, I feel excited. This is my third time. I'm like alumni here now. Yeah, you are. We'll just have to <laughs> keep a seat for you all the time. Yep. So, so could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself in case they missed some of the earlier episodes? Yeah, I am just someone who's been interested in the strange and unusual since I was a little kid. I got involved in the wild and wacky world of ghost hunting around the year 2000. And I we went to haunted houses. We went to cemeteries. We went to businesses that had ghosts. And all, it was fun. But I just realized I was more scared of the living than the dead, as I always say, because we walked into some situations that I'm like, I don't think it's a ghost that's your problem. And I'm not qualified to help you with this. So I realized <laughs> what I loved about ghosts and hauntings and legends was all of the history behind the stories and how they perpetuate and continue on and how they change and why we continue to tell them and the kind of just significance they have in our life because everyone whether they believe or not has a ghost story or has something anomalous they couldn't explain that happened to them or they have that friend of a friend that had something happen to them everyone has something and of course this month october is just the best time of the year to talk about this stuff and yeah because of my love of this i started writing books and i love introducing people to michigan history in a fun unique entertaining way and this can be kind of people's gateway into just regular history because it's the fun stuff like this the sensational stuff that sucks people in it really is it really is so in your books you have a lot of ghostly tales so that's kind of the theme of this show without giving away all the details so they go out and read your books could you share a few stories you know one of my favorite stories i i love stuff that i can I have a personal attachment to or something that I actually looked into myself or investigated. And growing up in Grand Haven, Michigan, there was a house that as kids, like growing up in the 90s and, and late 80s, we didn't I never heard anything about this. But it was the older generation in the 60s that would talk about this home in downtown Grand Haven and call it the Axe Murder House and really? just talk about how creepy it was and their grandma would have a story about it that something awful happened there. And then, yeah, somehow it turns into an axe murder. So whatever. No one ever bothers to look into the history of it or research it. And I've always worked in libraries my whole life. And one day a gentleman walks in and he's older and he said something in something happened in my family when I was young. And my family to this day, all of the old timers, they refused to talk about it. And I'd hear about it in hushed tones, in adult conversations when I was a kid. And I just want to look this up and see what happened. So he starts 
looking into this and we discover some stuff. Now, I should say that we found this information that I'm going to be sharing. And after that, the woman that owns this home, it's not a home. It got, um, it's now a commercial property. So while it still looked like a two-story old brick home covered in ivy, just looks creepy. Um, it was a consignment store at the time. And the owner mm. walks into the library and she's like, you know, I kind of want to do some research on the place I own because really weird stuff has been happening in there. And I, I just want to know. I want to know the history of the house. So we were like, well, where do you live? And she tells us and we're like, wait a minute. Holy cow. This is what that old guy came in and looked up. And in 1922, it was Thanksgiving Day. There was a family living there and the husband and wife got into an argument that left a bullet in her back. And she was left at the foot of their stairs. When you walk into the house, there's this, there's this big, beautiful wooden staircase going up to the second floor. And she was found the next day by her son. Well, the night before, her husband had been running all around Grand Haven crazy, just drunk, showing up at different people's houses, saying weird stuff, sleeping it off in someone's barn. And then, yeah, the next day they find the body. And, of course, they're like, uh, yeah, I think her husband has something to do with this. Now, he owned the Eagle Saloon <laughs> in Grand Haven at the time, and now it's 1922. So what's going on in history that's kind of making owning a saloon a bit of a problem? Prohibition. So he was drunk on moonshine, probably, I think, selling moonshine. And so he ends up getting arrested and they bring him in and he's completely like, I didn't do it. I don't know who did it. Just denied it to the very end. The everything was sensational about the story. Everyone was waiting because back in the day, going to a trial like this was exciting to sit down and listen to everything that goes on, the testimony. And so people were really looking forward to this. They, they wanted to see Peter like get in trouble because everyone knew like that they did it. They even had to get a new set of jurors because all the jurors that they picked beforehand pretty much made up their mind that Peter did it. So they had to go on the hunt, find new people. And he sat in jail for 100 days before they secured a good jury. Then the wow. trial lasts for one single day. And everyone's bummed out. But he did a plea bargain and he accepted manslaughter, even though he never admitted. He was really cold about his wife. When when reporters would come in and ask him, like, oh, my God, your wife, you know, she was murdered. He was just kind of like, eh. Like, didn't show any emotion. And he seemed to be, like, super great in jail. He's like, yeah, I'm clean and sober. I'm exercising every morning. They're feeding me well. This is awesome, you know? It was, like, his, his like, rehab unit. <laughs> and so he ends up going to jail. And everyone was really angry because he served the minimum time for manslaughter. And in 1922, you could get a fine of up to $1,000. You could serve around 7.5 years to 15 years. And he just did seven years in Jackson, and he had to pay $500, which in today's amount is around $8,000. And he went to Jackson, spent time there. And when he got out, he was kind of ostracized. Like, he just found odd jobs around. He sold flowers to tourists. And then he passed away in 1949 from a heart attack. And his family put him in an unmarked plot. He's, he's buried in Lake Forest Cemetery in Grand Haven, but they never gave him a tombstone. And like I said, the family didn't talk about it. They were pretty much ashamed of that this had happened. And there was like cute quote, well, not cute, but like sort of just that old timey newspaper stuff where the judge said, you know, this 
this let this be a lesson because if you had stopped drinking when the liquor was outlawed in the first place, this wouldn't happen. Just like, you know, prohibition hits and everyone stops drinking. Yeah, right. right, right. And then they even said that right. this case should be a warning to others who follow that moonshine trail. So over the years then that you can see where this story was forgotten. It wasn't talked about by the family. And then as these stories and things turn into sort of legend and folklore in their own right, yeah, it becomes this axe murder house because no one knows the story. So it was fun. That was my first foray into go, like investigating the history behind something. And I just I was sucked in. But Linda, who owned the store, had all these little things happen, all the usual things that happen with a haunting. You'd She'd hear footsteps upstairs when she was closing the store. And she's like, uh, did I leave a customer in here? She'd go upstairs. There'd be no one there. The lights would flicker on and off when one of the cleaning people would come in. And, you know, it's an old house, so you could chalk it up to just faulty old electrical wiring. There was a young girl working at the counter during the day, and she actually saw a white apparition come down the stairs. And she was like, whoa, I'm out. Like, I don't think she stayed there long after that. And to see a daytime apparition just out of the blue, to me, that's just amazing because usually people just seem to see this stuff at night. Yeah. So she contacted us because I we, we had an investigated investigative group at the time and we came in, we checked things out, we listened to her story and gave her all the research on the murder and the trial. And the second time we went back, we did what's called an EVP session, which stands for electronic voice phenomena. And it's where ghost hunters will sit with some type of audio recording equipment and ask questions just out in the air. Sometimes you feel kind of stupid doing this because you're just like, is there anyone here with us? And then you just sit there for a while. (laughs) And so we were recording up on the second uh, story and, you know, nothing crazy happened while we were there. But when we were analyzing the audio file, there was a chunk of audio that was like just real staticky and weird. And the rest of it was crystal clear. Now in the EVP world, any good ghost hunter will tell you, you don't clean up the audio. You leave it as is. You don't alter it. Uh, when you tell people about what you think you hear, you try to like say, hey, what do you think you hear first? Because if you tell someone right away what they're going to hear, they usually hear it. But I s- thought, you know, I'm going to run this through our audio equipment and clean this up a bit and see what is in that static because there was something strange about it. And as I'm going it, going through using filters and stuff, all of a sudden I start to hear this like weird cadence come through the the just the fuzz. So I'm listening and I'm like, oh my God, what? Okay, am I hearing this right? You hear this voice that sounds like it says, I'm not happy, I'm not happy, I'm not happy. And then it pauses and then you hear this help me. And I was like, whoa, okay. So I sent the audio file around to some of my friends, didn't tell them what to expect to hear. And all of them were like, this is what I hear. And it was the same thing that I heard. So I was like, okay, all right. I think we're all in agreement here. And it just, that was spooky. And just knowing the history of that house and then hearing that audio clip, um, that that was like, ooh, chills. And I still, I at my presentations, I'll play the audio clip uh, for people. And it is, it's spooky i evp is really really fascinating in the ghost world it's like i don't know how these voices appear on tape i mean whether it's analog or digital but some of them can be crystal clear we've had uh, in one of our investigations we did back in the day we had a voice where someone says did you hear that and you hear me go yeah and you hear a voice clear as day say i doubt that 
And it's like, what? I mean, wow. it's just, it's the thing. When people try to still show me, like, I got a photo. Look at my photo. I'm like, oh, I get cringy because often it's just bad photography. It's light refraction, you know, reflection, reflection or refraction or whatever. And I'm always like, oh, I don't, I don't want to tell you you don't have a ghost, but oh, you don't. So I don't know. EVP, I think, is a very fascinating part. But that I put that story in my book, Ghosts and Legends of Michigan's West Coast. And the building is now vacant. Uh, it's not a consignment store anymore. It's just been sitting there for years. And recently, when I went back to Grand Haven, I noticed something was opening in there. So I don't know what store or business is going in there, but it makes me curious if they kind of know the history of the building that they purchased. You might have to stop by and tell them. Right? Yeah. Just be like, here's my yeah. card if you ever uh, hear anything weird in here. <laughs> yeah. We're sell, sell all your books there. Sell some of your books there and uh, put them on display. Right. Yeah. So your newest book that came out this year, Mysterious Michigan, there's a bit of a ghost story there. On the cover, it says the lonely ghost of Minnie Quay. Minnie Quay. Oh, it's such a wonderful Michigan legend. It's been around for so long. It has such a great history. And it's another story that I just have really like all the feels for because in around 2006, there was a group of us that went over to Forrester, where this tale takes place in Michigan's Thumb along Lake Huron. And we rented a house and just hung out on Lake Huron at night, kind of set up a fire, looking for that ghost of Minnie Quay. Because the legend says that people see this apparition, this white apparition of a woman walking along the shores of Forrester there, allegedly looking for her lost love at sea. And the story oh. that always goes around is that this young girl fell in love with a sailor and it the love was forbidden by the parents. She was young. He was a little older. No parent wants their child falling in love with like one of those like dirty, you know, sailors that come mm -hmm. into port. And then when it was forbidden, she killed herself. And then her ghost forever looks out. For her love. Now, another addition that gets thrown in there is that she heard that his ship sunk at on the lake, on Lake Huron, or Lake Michigan, one of the two. And when she got news of that, that's what prompted her to kill herself. So wow. this story was initially written and recorded, which in, made it popular in the 90s and, and can, you know onward, in 1992 by Marion Kuklo, who was known as the green witch gundela she was quite the amazing storyteller in the 70s and 80s in south uh, east michigan and she was a proud practicing witch her family had like her scottish family had this lineage of witchcraft going way back she was not scared to talk about her beliefs um she was always very like hey we don't worship the devil we don't do all this evil spell stuff. Like we just, we're, we're positive. Like we believe in our own power and she sold little love potions and did astrology and all. She was just a cool woman. She wrote a lot of little editorials for some of the local papers uh, called Witch Week and had some different stuff. And she just was an all around awesome woman. She wore this giant um, like spider pendant that just looked like it had its own power and kind of glowed. It had like a big jewel in it. Uh, and mm. so if you Google, uh, uh, the Green Witch Gundela or Marion Kuklo, you'll see a lot of pictures. There's some cool stuff on uh, YouTube about her with some interviews and just kind of a cool little piece of uh, Detroit area history. But 
she also had a flair with that flair of storytelling. She wasn't always the best researcher. And also in 1992, sometimes it was harder to look into this stuff and go look up old newspapers. It's harder. You know, now this stuff, a lot of it's being digitized, which is fantastic. So you can look through things. Um, it's easy to get on Ancestry.com and look these people up. Were they real? So always being interested in this story, I decided I got to I gotta revamp this and put this in my new book because it is just, it is a key Michigan legend. And I just wanted Minnie Quay's story to kind of be a little slightly more corrected uh, just just for her longevity out there in the future. And she was. Yeah. She was she was 15 years old. She was almost 16. And she did. She did fall in love with a sailor. And her parents uh. were livid. Like just argument after argument after argument. And you can't ever see him again. And his ship did not sink. That's not what caused her to kill herself. She left a note to her parents, basically just angry at them for what they said to her because the rumor around town, and you have about less than a thousand people living in this logging town. It's 1876. Mm -hmm. The tallest building in the town is the Methodist church. There's no saloons, but there's lots of gossiping lips. And as soon yeah. as they saw Minnie walk, you know, walking around, maybe holding hands, taking a stroll with the sailor, the rumors started and the rumors were that of the worst kind for a girl of her age at that time that she was pregnant with his child. Mm. So she denied it, told her parents that wasn't the truth and they didn't believe it. And so around 3 p.m. on April 27th, 1876, she just walked down to the docks and walked off into the cold Lake Huron water and never came back out alive and it took them about an hour wow. to find her body there's a few articles that exist in the old papers that talk about what happened and all of them say she was just despondent over her parents and she was mortified by the rumors and so there was yeah no ship sinking that caused her to do this and it's just a sad lonely tale and to think wow. that, okay, well, if her ghost is still out there looking for her love or just kind of stuck there because it was a suicide. I mean, however you want to believe what happens to people, you know, if they kill themselves. Um, it is. I just feel like she. it's a lonely ghost tale. And now we didn't see anything, of course, when we were there. We just have good memories of, you know, eating good food, sitting around a campfire, <laughs> looking for a ghost. So it's nice that sometimes even these ghost stories, even though they can have this tragic background, can still bring people together and create fun memories today. And I do feel like this story and her life now is sort of immortal because of she's legend. And what was interesting, though, in my research was her story was preserved, not just because of the newspapers, which, like I said, was just a very couple small articles mentioned in like the Sanilac News. But it was the Lumberjacks that preserved her story. Lumberjacks hmm. would have ballads that they would sing. And there was a guy, Earl Clifton Beck. He was an English professor at Central Michigan University. He would he spent years collecting these ballads because considered it, uh, he considered it part of folklore. And he, he, I think he got this around. He collected a few different versions from the 1930s. There's not a lot of variations, but I put one of the ballads of Minnie Quay in the book. And yes, it does not say, again, anything about the ship sinking. It's Marion Kuklo's version that, I, like I said, I think she just waved her creative wand or little witch wand over that, wow. uh, that her <laughs> version of the ballad and changed it a bit. And But they called them bunkhouse ballads. These were ballads that they didn't sing about their work. 
They were different stories. They would sing them before they went to bed at like nine o'clock at night because they had to get up early. So it's neat to just see that this story obviously made an impact in the thumb area enough that Lumberjacks wrote a song about it and continued to sing it up until like, you know, the 30s and 40s. Wow. Wow. What a story. What a, what a, what a great uh, pining for your love type story, you know? I know. That you, I, yeah, it does. It know. does have, it has all the great qualities that make a ghost story. You know, you got this tragic yeah. ending, the love's forbidden love, the, the town gossips, you know, just causing her to be horribly depressed um, then, like I said, the you know, poor those, girl, old, those, those legends of all the good, the girl on the bridge, you, they're probably, you've probably seen those that are all over the country where people have seen oh, yeah. some yeah. girl standing by a bridge and they give her a ride home when they get there and yep. she's gone or something like yep. that. You know, it's all has a similar, um, feeling with the same type of story, you know? Um, oh yeah. Like there, a lot of them, the, the, a lot of our legends do have that tragedy, you know, like the Ada witch, uh, in Grand Rapids, it's just Ada is a little area outside of Grand Rapids. And that was another legend that became popular when that movie, The Blair Witch Project, came out. And right. all of a sudden, the radio uh, jockey guys got all excited about this Ada Witch story when Blair Witch came out and started talking about it in October. And that's another legend that just says there was a woman that was cheating on her husband. The husband knew it. So she would sneak off in the night to go meet her lover and the husband waited one night for her to sneak out of the house and followed her. And when he caught her in the arms of her lover, uh, he went nuts and killed his killed his wife. And then they say those two guys fought and then killed each other from the wounds they inflicted. And then that area where this is where her apparition is seen or the, you know, the eight. And I don't know why it was just branded Ada witch. It's just, I think it's just one of those things that happens throughout the years and it sounds good. So people continue it. It sounds spooky, but uh, her apparition has been seen around the area of Finley cemetery. And that is pretty much all homes around that area. It's still very foresty with lots of dirt roads and stuff, but lots of people live there. It used to be just woods around the cemetery and hunters would report later on that they'd hear this ghostly sounds of some kind of skirmish, some kind of fight, and they'd never find anyone. And then they'd be sitting there waiting for a deer and then feel something, someone tap tap them on their shoulder, turn around, no one was there. And then, yeah, seeing this apparition walking along the road and then disappearing around Finley. And it's then that one persists. Uh, I don't know. I've never met anyone that has claimed to have seen that, le- you know, that spirit. But people love to go to the cemetery in that area and drive around and check it out at night. Well, speaking of cemeteries, now I know you you've done some cemetery tours. I saw that on your website. Do you uh, have you have any experiences with taking people out into the cemeteries and doing tours? Our cemetery tours that we offer in Grand Haven were inspired by my Wicked series, my true crime books, and oh, okay. we do. I mean, that is kind of a slightly conservative area so we we felt like there wasn't enough ghost stories about our local cemeteries to make like a complete ghost tour so (laughs) we started we thought well you know everyone like really digs true crime right now so let's talk about all the miscreants and scoundrels that are buried here in their stories so some of them are crazy murder stories some of them are just weird things that happen some of them are kind of cute like not all of them are just like doom and gloom And we started these, oh my gosh, over 10 years ago, 
we do Lake Forest Cemetery in Grand Haven, Robinson Township Cemetery, which is in Robinson Township. Uh, we do um, Grand Haven Township Cemetery. And we're going to be soon doing Nunica Cemetery, which is also one of the legendary haunted cemeteries in West Michigan. Of course, we will tell a ghost story or two. I always on my tour, we because we get a lot of people. I mean, one time I was guiding around 150 people. It was nuts. I don't even know how they all heard me. Wow. But these Lake Forest, and this was in Lake Forest. At least Lake Forest is a massive cemetery. But yeah, everyone, that's a big crowd. Oh yeah, and we get to the area where Peter Koopman is is in his unmarked grave, and I'm like, Are "You guys ready for a ghost story?" And they're like, "Yeah." <laughs> so I'm like, "Hey, okay, I'm standing on the unmarked grave of a guy who allegedly murdered his wife. Never admitted to it, but we all know he did it." And uh, I tell the story and then share the EVP. And it's just fun to kind of see everyone sort of just get the chills real quick or come up and ask me more about it at the end or tell me their ghost story. So we kind of keep it to a true crime, which, hey, true crime is just as creepy as a ghost story because it really happened. So yeah, yeah, I yeah. we've had a few people that have shown up to our tours. And when we announce like, I, we were at the Grand Haven Township Cemetery, and I remember we, I think we specifically said, you know, this isn't a ghost tour. And we see like two people just walk off. <laughs> we're like, hey, <laughs> you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> Come yeah. back. So we've been doing these tours uh, because of COVID. We ended up for Lake Forest recording uh, us talking about the stories, and then people could go up to the different locations and use a QR code on their phone. And then the video of us would pop up talking about the story at that spot at that tombstone. So it's oh, that's that's cool. kind of what we've been doing. But next year, I think we're going to bring it back to where we're doing it live and in person. And I think we might be doing it year round. We might not just try to all jam everything in in like August and September, which can be hard. Wow. And now I, you, we've never really talked about your book on Ottawa County. So can you give maybe a story from like your Wicked <laughs> Ottawa? Oh, my favorite, my favorite story from Wicked Ottawa County. And we do tell it on our cemetery tour every time. It's kind of we do rotate stories every year because we do have a lot for that one. But Thomas Mahan is one I keep on the tour every year. And Thomas Mahan, he's like I think he was around 36 years old. And he was one of these tough guys. Like, you didn't really mess with him. He was a government diver. He was, uh, what else did he do? He was he would do fights. Like, he would do fights for money and stuff. Like, like I don't know, boxing or whatever. And he was kind mm -hmm. of a small guy, but well-built. Like, every story always has to talk about how well-built he was. So, in 1914, this is when this happened. He's married his job keeps him away from the house a lot. His wife, Leona, she's kind of lonely. And she meets a younger guy, Fred Allison, who's only 19. And Leona's in her 30s. So cougar wow. here. <laughs> and Fred Allison, he's known around town. This happened in Grand Haven. And he's a minor league baseball player. So, I mean, I can just imagine, like, ooh, ooh I got this, you know, young thing coming by the house tonight. And Tom knows something's going on. So kind of just like the Ada Witch story, but only we know this is fact. He told his wife, I'm going out to work one night and I, uh, you know, I'll probably be gone for hours. So don't wait up for me. So he goes and hides and comes back because he knows Fred Allison now is in the house. So he waits like an hour. Who knows what compromising position he found them in when he came into the house, but he just walks in 
and Fred Allison is terrified. His wife's trying to give excuses like, I just wanted to show him our new furniture. And it's like, honey, it's 1030 at night. I don't think you're showing him the new furniture. So (laughs) Thomas is so livid. And he takes Fred down to his basement. He ties him to a chair. This kid, I can only imagine what's going through his head. And the paper did quote Fred saying that I deserve whatever you give me. You know, I, I, I did wrong here. I don't think he planned for this because Thomas lets him sit there for a while, just sweating. And he puts out in front of him a mallet and a chisel. And then what the papers describe as Fred Allison and his, quote, member. And so Thomas went to town on um, a certain body part on Fred with the mallet and chisel. Now, when I when I tell this on the tour, I swear to God, every guy just goes (laughs) and just cringes. So the poor guy passes out. There's blood everywhere. He's got Thomas has kids around. So God knows what his kids were thinking. Like, what is dad doing in the basement? Leona had taken off outside and was hiding in like a shed out in the back. And so Thomas gets his one of his kids to go call the police, get a doctor. And and it went out the police first, but get a doctor. The doctor comes in and he's like, uh, this isn't okay. Something, this isn't right. And and Tom admitted, he's like, I yeah, I did this. Now, now fix him up, stitch him up, do something. But the doctor was like, Okay, I gotta go back for my tools. But he went back and got the cops. Cops arrested mm-hmm. him. And the story does get a little more involved because Leona allegedly had been having an affair with, at least she said, an affair also with the good sheriff in town, Hans Dykehouse. And Hans denied it. And everyone had to go on trial because adultery was a crime at this time. So everybody had to go to prison for a bit. Thomas was in Ionia, uh, the uh, prison there at Ionia for eight months. Leona had to do some time at the women's correctional facility in Detroit. And Fred did a little time at Ionia, but He got pardoned pretty fast because everyone said, look, this guy suffered enough for what he did. And when you look, I forget what they call those. But back in the day when they would check prisoners into a jail, they would have a card. And sometimes if they didn't have a photo of that person, they would use descriptors and say blonde hair, five, nine, heavy set, uh, mole on face. And with Mm -hmm. Fred, they actually made mention that he was a little, quote, disfigured in that area. Now he went on to have kids. So things worked okay. Um, so there's that, but Thomas got out early too, because he had to take care of their kids while his wife went and did time for her adultery and his, he died at 96. So he lived for a long time. He ended up becoming a, he got a boat. And so he, he earned the name like captain Thomas Mahan And in his obit, I love that they say this. They said, quote, in his younger days, he had quite a reputation as a fighter. And most men who tested him regretted the challenge. (laughs) So I bet that one guy did. Oh, Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he probably never cheated again. Wow. So that and some other amazing stories are in Amber Rose's book wicked ottawa county now being that it's halloween do you have any specific halloween stories ambrose you know i don't have like besides just loving halloween as a kid i still 
everyone out there probably has had reoccurring anxiety dreams. People will have dreams like about their teeth falling out or they can't find like their locker in school and they're like 55 years old and they're still having dreams about their school locker Mm -hmm. and not able to get to their class on time. I will still have dreams that it is Halloween. The trick-or-treating has started. I got to get out there and I don't have my costume on. I can't find it. And I like still at age 41, I'll have these weird trick-or-treating anxiety dreams. Like what? But I, (laughs) I loved trick-or-treating. I lived for just building my costume going. I mean, I swear our neighborhood trick-or-treating was like from 5 PM to nine, four hours in this big residential neighborhood. You'd be carrying a bag so heavy. Your arm would be sore the next day from candy and then just sitting around with your friends going, dumping that candy out, which anyone too that remembers trick-or-treating back in the day, there is a certain smell that is created from the combination of all the candy in your bag that you just cannot recreate. You have to go trick-or-treating to get the smell. And right. you know, pulling through and like saying, okay, ew, a bit of honey, who wants this? And I'll take your three musketeers and just kind of doing the barter trade thing with the candy mm-hmm. and then having it for months to just eat and snack on. It was, it's just the best. Now, de- now in Michigan, I know growing up, we always recognize the night before Halloween as devil's night. And that mm-hmm. is, that is kind of an exclusive Michigan thing. There might be one other place. I don't know if it was New Jersey that calls it like a devil's night, but it's that's not really a thing around the U.S. It's a Michigan thing that started in Detroit and really for a bad reason because the night before on that devil's night, tons of people in the 80s and into the 90s would set fires all around Detroit. And so wow. around, I forget the year, if it was like in the late 90s or even the early O's, um, they the, the mayor at the time was like, okay, we're turning this into angel's night. And they got an army of volunteers that would just kind of police the city and try to just get a presence out there to get people to stop setting all these abandoned houses on fire and doing all this destruction. And it has largely gone away. I mean, I think if you went and talked to like anyone that works for the Detroit PD, they'll probably tell you, yeah, there's a few fires that always happen, but it's nothing like what it was back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Did you know that in the 1800s, uh, between 1870 and 1890, I've been researching the story all week, and I'm going to be doing a podcast on it later on with all these stories. But, you know, we come to know and get used to hearing about pumpkins and all that, and trick-or-treating as being part of Halloween. And that was probably part of it, but I think the, I think the pumpkins were more of an interior decoration back then. But one of the things that used to be a common thing is all the boys would go out on the street and it was like mayhem all night long. And oh, they yeah. would be out until 3 or 4 in the morning. And they had a thing for cabbage patches. They would take every cabbage in every field and throw it on everybody's porch. And there would be other vegetables too. But cabbages were like the common thing coming up for about 20 years in the 1800s. And I'm going to be going into a lot of detail on that in another episode. But I just thought, wow, that is something I'd never heard of before. It's, and they would they would move gates off of people's um, fronts of people's houses. I guess the gates were – everybody had a gate. And the boys would come around and take the gates and they'd hang them from the light poles. And they'd move them or, or bring them down. And, the, you know, people would have to go all over town to find their gates. <laughs> it was I, yeah. just a – 
I, you know, you just reminded me, I, I was going to write, and of course it's not right at the tip of my memory right now, but I was going to include a little section on some Halloween history in my new book, um, like what you're talking about, because going through the old newspapers, yeah. I would find all of these little incidents around Halloween where they are talking about these savage little boys and all of the yeah. shenanigans that they were doing. And some of it was like pretty like, whoa, guys, whoa. <laughs> you know, yeah. we think, we, it's we outrageous. Think, yeah. It's outrageous what they were they would do. And I, I was trying to find when it kind of tapered off. And it seems like about the 1900s, it, it seemed to have shifted more to parties and stuff, probably from the efforts of the adults to curb it. But, um, man, it was just, it was... It was a chaos evening, you know, yeah, and they would be out there all all night long, you know, yeah. they'd be, you know. Yeah, smashing pumpkins and, and throwing toilet paper and trees and stuff is nothing new. Like there's just been different variations of it through the through yeah. the, through the decades. <laughs> yeah. Back in the day, it was turning over horse um, hitching posts. And um, another another thing that they would do is they would, I guess, this, the the businesses back in the 1800s all had different signs outside they would interpose signs all over town. So they would put a logger or buy beer sign in front of the church. <laughs> or, you know, and they, they'd move these things around town. They'd put, you know, something about a men's shop in front of the women's dress shop. And, um, and all these stories would come out in the paper to the next day about all these things, you know. Um, you know just crazy stuff. Putting, they, They'll spend all evening, they'll fill a wagon loaded with something and balance it on top of, an outhouse or something like that. You know, it was just all kinds of crazy <laughs> stuff brat. that they would do. Yeah. And there'd be armies of boys doing this. They plan these things out for probably months oh, ahead of time, what they were going to do, you know? <laughs> so definitely a different time period. Uh, for sure. Well, it's been, it's been great having you on the show again, Ambrose. We'll yeah, just have to come you. up with some more stories in the oh, future. Yeah. Um, I got endless stories. Yeah, this is great. Um, so, I've been talking with Amber Rose Hammond. She's got several books, um, and I'm going to put the link to her website because it's probably better you buy the books through her website, but you can also find them on Amazon. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we take another adventure into some tales of Southwest Michigan's past... Thank you for listening.